Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thanks for hanging out today. Today, my guest is Elaine Rasnick, who is a mastering engineer based out of Pennsylvania, who runs Daughterboard Audio. And as you'll hear in this interview, she is very recently niched down into the world of mastering. She used to be doing full production stuff before, but now she's niched down to mastering. And I brought her on today because she's not only doing amazing work, but there's also something unique about Elaine that I don't see a lot of mastering engineers doing, which is that she masters 100% on headphones. And I know that there's a lot of you listening who only have headphones to work on. Maybe you have small rooms or uh, don't have the ability to have loudspeakers blasting in your in your apartments or your basements or wherever you are. And as a result, you have to work on headphones. And I know for a lot of people, learning to use headphones to help with mixing or mastering, it can be a bit of a process to get used to them and to fully understand how to make masters or mixes translate with headphones. So in this interview, Elaine and I get into a lot of conversation about mastering on headphones and what goes into it, how to pick the right headphones, how to understand what's going to translate from one system to another, what's going to translate from one streaming platform to another, all that kind of stuff. Elaine is very articulate with her answers, and she has a really deep understanding of why she does what she does. And I think that that definitely comes across in this interview here. And I think that if you're someone who is mixing or mastering or recording with headphones, there's definitely a lot to learn from this. Or if you're someone who's just very interested in the mastering process in, in general, Elaine definitely has a lot of great advice here. And she's also a very scrappy person. And when I say that, I mean that she figures out ways to make things work for her no matter what. And as you'll hear in this interview, she does talk about various tools that she's used within her software to help her with understanding how her mixes translate and a whole bunch of other stuff. So I think you're going to learn a lot from this interview. So with that said, let's just jump right into it. Elaine Rasnick, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. For people who might not be familiar with you or your background or what you do and how you got into everything that you do now, uh, can you give us that story? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm a mastering engineer. Um, I'm located in Philadelphia. And I mean, a lot of this got started uh, due to uh, the quarantine and the pandemic in terms of mastering. Like I... um, I went to college for audio production um, out in Bloomsburg uh, University. Uh, it's in like the middle of Pennsylvania. And um, I studied audio production, which was like really highly focused on in the studio engineering and recording and a little bit of live sound. And then we spent like maybe two weeks on mastering, you know, how to use Isotope, <laughs> <laughs> how, to, how to use Ozone. Um, but then as uh, as time went on and a couple of couple of fun adventures in between um when when quarantine hit and I had to kind of come to the decision of like I want to keep doing this audio stuff but I can't have people come to my house and do I want to dive into something completely new that seems really exciting like mastering where I just get a file and I help people clean up double check their music you know make it sound the best that it can be or go down the route of like mixing, which, you know, you can spend like months and months on something. 
um, the way that my brain works, just mastering felt a lot simpler. It was a much, it was a much simpler, a uh, really fun puzzle to kind of figure out. And I've been doing that ever since. That's amazing. And had you been doing the full production stuff before? Like the, yeah. So probably back in like 2017, um, I was helping out a lot of, uh, local friends and bands. Cause, um, I, I did my own kind of, a musician thing. I was a, uh, I was a musician and out of college, I essentially made like a band camp page and was making records, but mainly as a portfolio, not as like, oh, I'm going to like tour and I'm going to promote this and stuff. It was pretty much just like, here's how I can produce. Here's how I can record and mix and master. I would love to work with you, you know? And then of gotcha. course, later on, I did uh, tour a whole bunch, met a bunch of wonderful people and then made friends and they were like, hey, can you mix this? Can you help me record that? You know, and I did that whole classic trio of record mix master um, until I yeah, decided to narrow it down, get into the niche. For sure. Yeah, it's, I, I'm always fascinated when people niche down. And I, I do think that at some point in your career, it's like the smart thing to do because you can't always just be doing everything, you know, or, or maybe yeah. you can, but it's it's harder to... I think it's harder to balance everything, you know, and, and to just have that objective opinion when you see a project all the way from the beginning to end. Um, yeah, so so as far as the mastering side of things went, like you did mention that you you got a couple weeks worth of training in, in, in school. Um, yeah. But like, how did you really go about learning the mastering side of things? Internet. Internet was, I was, I'm very, very lucky that I kind of started per se, this in a time where technology was so just at my fingertips. I was able to go onto YouTube, you know, and like Ian Shepard had videos about how to make a mastering room and how to do this mastering stuff. Um, I had a handful of textbooks from college that had like the one chapter on mastering and I <laughs> dove into that. Um, and then I kind of took to forums and and Facebook and ended up joining the Mastering Engineers Worldwide Facebook group and just talking to people. So just finding as many resources, websites, anything that I could and just absorbed as much as I could as quickly as I could so that I could really dive in as if I'd been doing it for several years. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So now that you've been at this for a while and after all of this like research and everything that you were doing, like learning it all on the internet, Looking back at your experience in school where you said you were learning about using ozone, like ozone is one of those things where people just think, oh, this is this is mastering. This is a mastering plugin. So therefore, if I know this, I know what mastering is. So how would how would you describe the differences between ozone mastering versus professional level mastering? I'm surprised of how many similarities there still are. Okay. Um, like when I when I learned it, you know, Spotify didn't exist yet. So it was very much focused on, you know, you, this is where a CD should be hitting, you know, make sure that you're not clipping and this is a chance to do any general cleanup. And then there was a big focus and I really loved the idea of an album and like the spaces in between. Like I'm always that person that gets a little annoyed when someone cuts off like the end of the song and I'm just kind of like, but someone made that fade out, you know, like someone took the time, please listen to it, you know, and I just 
that that stuck with me. Um, so that kind of came in the like ozone learning um, and just it's it's funny um the ozone that i learned on didn't have all of the like automation i think it might have been like ozone 3 or 4 <laughs> um so i still very much used it as if it was like a piece of analog gear like i'd make really small adjustments i'd listen to it i tried not to go overboard and just get it exactly where it needed to be and and yeah, not not get too wrapped up in, oh, there's this though, and there's this plug-in part too, you know, and just get a little too carried away. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely like a lot of features in there. And sometimes like having all of those features can be overwhelming or make you feel like you need to use it all. Yeah. And I think that's that's definitely where people can go wrong with that stuff, especially if it's like, you know, you see like presets and you're like, oh, well, this is a person I respect, so let's use their settings. And now my stuff sounds like them. It's like, they, yeah. they probably would have customized it a little differently. Exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. So, so yeah. So as far as like where you're at right now with all of this stuff, um, I'm assuming you're not entirely using ozone. Maybe, maybe you're not even using it at all. <laughs> I still, I still use it as my uh, final bit. I just really like it's maximizer a lot yeah. and some of its other small plugins. Um, though one really cool thing about ozone advanced is that you can use the plugins, um, they, they can be their own separate thing so that I can have, you know, it's dynamic EQ earlier in my chain and I don't have to be limited to the box that is ozone. Totally. I agree with that for sure. Like as a mastering engineer myself too, I, I do find myself frequently using like their imager tool on its own. Like I really like that. I think it's a really cool element of it and yeah, yeah it works really well. So uh, yeah, sometimes just like separating the little components of it, make it a lot easier than having everything in front of you all the time. Yeah. Um, so when you start a mastering project, like what is your typical mindset going into it? Like how do you start? Where do you start? What's, how do, how do you yeah. approach things? So um, even, even before I get to my computer, um, I have a, like an intake form on my website. And so this gives me a chance to kind of have a quick, a quick guide as to what each uh, artist and musician is kind of expecting or thinking about. So whether they're like, hey, I really love how shimmery this part is, but I want to keep the low end oomph, you know, and, um, and all of that stuff. And that just immediately allows a conversation that then I can kind of communicate back and forth in an email. And then when I'm listening, I can kind of have a combination of like my blank slate mind, but also being like, I do like how it's shimmery, you know, in the back <laughs> of my mind that at least I'm aware of that um, when, when listening and kind of focusing in on what, if when I close my eyes, what's making my ears kind of perk up and say like, huh, why is that there? You know, or, oh, hmm, hmm you know, and, and it allows me to figure out what's there, what's supposed to be there on purpose and what might be like a bit of an accident that that can be fixed, whether on my side of things or back in the mix. I love that. That's a, a really good way to look at it. It's it's kind of similar to when people supply like rough mixes to people in the mixing stage. It's like sometimes the person who's making that rough mix doesn't really know what they're doing. And so there's just things that are like happy accidents. And then sometimes there's things that are like purposely done a certain way. And you just have to know like, okay, this is the thing they want to preserve in the final results. So, you yeah. know, having those kind of conversations with people definitely allows you to, to keep clear about 
you know, what, what to keep and what not to, to keep. Um, I'm curious to know, like, if, if you don't mind me asking, what kind of questions are you asking on your intake form to, to get this kind of information out? Yeah, so I know that I have uh, just like a general, you know, what are your expectations of the mastering process? Like, oh, make it loud, preserve the dynamics, you know, add more color and grit or just like do whatever you feel best, Elaine. Um, and then just if the person has any other notes, comments, or questions, for example, if they're like, please make sure that there is no spacing between the songs, you know, or, hey, I keep hearing this hissing sound. Can you fix this? Because I can't, you know, and just any little details that they might find useful when I when I get my hands on it. That makes sense. Are you like kind of prompting people with some sort of like answers or is it just kind of very open-ended and it's a combination like on the, uh, I, I use Squarespace. So on the, on the form, I'm able to actually put like, you know, IE, make it loud, gotcha. you know, and what do you expect? But then they just have a huge block of blank space that they can just, just talk to me in. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. No, I, I, the reason I asked that is because I feel like there's a lot of people who just don't know, like, especially that deep in a project, they don't always know what it needs or what, like what they want. To have done to their tracks it's yeah. just like make it sound better right and like it could be yeah. very, it can be sometimes really vague so it's like to get the clear answer so that you know exactly what you have to do like you know that's why i was asking if you if you prompted those kind of things absolutely and i think that's one of the things that i i kind of enjoy being a translator per se in in terms of you know someone who may just be a musician who loves writing and performing but they can't find the right word that you know something is missing and then you know they use their explanation and then and then I'm like oh okay so you want some like more low mids you know <laughs> and they're like oh okay that's the wording and I'm like yep you know and finding finding that fun middle balance where we both understand each other that's that's always a fun puzzle for sure i i read in an interview with you somewhere that uh, you'd mentioned that you typically like to ask your clients for reference tracks as well. Do you, do you still do that? I used to, um, not as much anymore. I think because bef I, I used to just say like, Hey, can you send me a reference track? Um, and now in place of that, I have it be more of, of a dialogue of a conversation. Um, and, and I, I say, you know, like, if you have any reference tracks, you know, you can copy and paste it here in the comments. Um, but for the most part, um, I think now that I've I've been mastering for, for more than a couple of years, I, I have a good sense of what stuff sounds like in certain genres. Um, or oftentimes, I'll actually go to um, a streaming service and listen to stuff that the artist has already released just to kind of get a vibe of like, okay, yep, that makes sense. This is kind of usually what they go for. And I can almost use their own music as a reference, um, especially if it's like calling back to what they usually do and it's not something out of the blue. That makes sense to me. Yeah, because I think sometimes too, like I found for myself, I, I also have an intake form where I was asking people for the longest time, like, you know, do you have any reference tracks? And very frequently I would get them sending me tracks that sounded nothing like the band sounded. And, you know, it's like, yeah. I guess, I guess people are always going to be comparing their music to other, other artists. And maybe it's not always like a similar sounding artist, but there's all, also that, like, there's a kind of fine line of like understanding when that reference track is 
giving you the information you need to to make the right decisions for that artist, right? So, so I was curious about that. Like, how were you using these reference tracks when people were submitting them to you? Were you a being their mixes against the reference, or yeah? So, um, one thing that I would often do is um, see if there was a similarity to you know the amount of high end, the amount of low end. Since I don't have that much control in terms of like the vocals being forward, the drums being further back, like more mix uh, things. So I kind of looked at just like the overall character. Was there heavy distortion or grit? Were things super shimmery and kind of clear and just like... Uh, stereotypically like pop, poppy, you know. Yeah. Um, and and I would kind of take that into consideration when when listening to a reference and comparing. Makes makes sense. Like, yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. So it wasn't like you were like completely like re EQ, like reshaping their mix with EQ to make it sound like the other reference tracks that they were sending you or any of that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, no, because and that was like always. That's like always the thing is that if I. If I get a track and then I'm like, oh my gosh, this reminds me so much of, you know, Reliant K circa 2002. I'm not going to take that track and mold an EQ so that they are identical. You know, I've, it's, it's a lot more subtle. It's, it's the subtleties of, oh, okay. Yeah. There is this like high end sparkle. You can like really feel the kick on your chest or maybe the kick is actually pretty tucked away, you know, and those more broader stroke adjustments that I know that I can make in the mastering stage, I'll kind of focus a lot more in on. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And especially when you're talking about people sending you stuff from like many years ago, like just the 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 state of how we listen to music now is different than like five years ago or 10 years ago or even more, right? So like exactly. the the frequency balances that we hear now are totally different than they were back then. And yeah. so I think it's like, I think it's funny when artists send me tracks that, you know, they're like, oh, I like this song from like the 80s or whatever. And it's like, well, that sounds different than like what you're going for now. Like, you know, <laughs> or if it's like a heavy rock song, it's like send you something from like the early 2000s versus now. It's like, the frequency balance is totally different. And like, so what are we going for here? Are we trying to chase a specific sound? Or are we trying to get a more modern thing? And I think, you know, that that is really where um, like that intake form that you have is a really smart idea because you can at least have those kind of back and forth. Uh, you get that input from the artist and then if you need to, you can get on a call with them and have that deeper level conversation, right? Exactly. Yeah, the conversation of like, okay, so I got this track. Tell me, tell me why. And it's like, oh, this drum just punches through, you know, and you're just like, okay, yeah, I had a feeling, just wanted to check, you know? Yeah, because you're right. Like oftentimes the reference that they're sending you, it like they're looking at their reference in a different way than we often are ourselves. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so maybe it is just that one element, like the kick drum that they really like. And, you know, you could have just completely gone backwards and re would like, you know, rolled off all the top end to match this era's sound and that kind of <laughs> stuff. And, you know, <laughs> exactly. It can get dangerous very quickly. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, you talked about having this, this um, intake form. Then once you've kind of got a, a good lay of the land for what the artist wants, what's your approach from that point forward? Like, where do you typically start as far as processing goes and that kind of thing? Yeah. So after, after I've taken like a blind listen to things and, you know, I, I'll usually take note of, of things. Um, if anything pops out, like, whoa, the bass just, you know, is just punching me way too much. Um, <laughs> things like that. Um, then, yeah, then I'll kind of, 
it my processing um varies you know from song to song i don't have kind of a um uh what's it called my brain just wants to say a cut and paste but yeah i don't i don't do the same kind of processing every single time um i i'll have my go-tos that i i find that i use on every uh project but that's just because it's doing what i would what i want it to do mm-hmm. um so oftentimes i'll i use um the unisum compressor i think it's by like tone projects yeah um i've i've found that that's one of my go-tos very often i just i really like how it sounds when audio runs through it and just has like the tiniest bit like 0.25 reduction just to get those little bits just to kind of get the sound it it really helps especially because my setup is all digital i'm all in the box and so i really like finding plugins that even when you just run the audio through it it at least gives a little bit of character that kind of unspeakable it did something i have no clue what it did but it <laughs> did something to to the the artist's ears um i feel like that that really helps i i like trying to be as transparent as possible uh, when when working with stuff, unless told otherwise. Totally. I love that. And I think that that's the sign of a good engineer where it's like, you know your tools so well that you know that even if it's just on, even if the plugin is just on, it has its character. And I'm the same way. Like for me, like, there there's the uh that shadow hills mastering compressor and like oh yeah i, I love that thing and it's like yeah. such a character <laughs> box and like i don't do anything with it like i don't compress at all it's just on almost all the time for me and it it has this like warmth to it that i like and you know yep. it's it has magic and I, I like it for that right so i think you know it's it, it's a good exercise for anyone listening to this like if you're not sure why you have so many different plugins like just start comparing them just turn them on and off and see what they do and like start start at that level like you know learn what these plugins sound like and why they're all different from each other and sometimes it's just a matter of like plugin being on gives you a different sound maybe sometimes it's just volume like i know that like there's the universal audio uh like pull tech ones and like as soon as you put those on a on a mix it's like immediately 3db louder so it's like is that actually making it sound better or is it just louder you know so you just have to like learn learn what these tools do and get used to their sound and and sometimes you'll find you can get a really cool like tone shaper out of just a specific plugin. Absolutely. And one thing that I really love um so the main DAW that I work in is um Reaper. Okay. Um and it has a what do they call it like a delta delta solo um option so that um when I get a new plugin, um, or if I'm just kind of messing around and seeing, okay, what is this plugin actually doing? I can Delta solo and it will only feed me the output info. So it's like, oh, okay, I hear that it's adding a lot more mids to it, you know, or, oh, it's adding mids in this really interesting kind of sound, you know, or something. And I can... I can really hear the stuff that's usually blending in with everything. And so it's just really fun to use that that function to dig even deeper into what a plugin is doing, um, which I think is really important when I try to be transparent. I can learn that, oh yeah, 
when I bring this plugin in, it's going to boost, you know, here and here. So be mindful, you know. That's very cool. I love that feature. And I, I wish more, pl- more DAWs had that feature. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that, I mean, that's a great way to do it is like if you have a tool like that that can really make it easy for you to learn it, then, you know, by all means, like spend some time just learning these things. That, that's really what I yeah. like. The biggest lesson with all of this is, you know, there's even plugins or there's, um, what is it like the plugin doctor or mm-hmm. there's another one? I think, I think it's called like Bertram audio analyzer or something like that. I can't remember what it is, but it's basically like or EQ analyzer or something like that, where it's basically like it shows you exactly what the EQ curves of everything are and what they're yeah. doing and how those are all different. So it's like, there's a reason why plugins are all different and why some people like one versus another. And it's often just because they have a certain level of character to them or they, they do something that when you can actually like use a tool like what you're talking about, this Delta thing, it, you know, you now mm-hmm. understand what it does. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I love that. That, that that's what you that you'll do. Um, and then, so you you've got your your plugins that you use for tone shaping, and and then um, you know, as far as like EQ and compression and stuff like that, like what? How do you normally approach that in in your masters? Depends. I mean, oftentimes I find that I um, like in terms of order of operations. Yeah, it, it it's funny. It depends. Like sometimes I'll have an EQ and then a compressor and then another little EQ because of what the compressor does, you know. Um it just all it, it really depends on what the song's doing, you know. Yeah. And sometimes I find that like I don't even use an EQ because it just needed like a little bit of compression squish and then bringing the volume up and I'm like, "Sick. Yeah. This is it, you know." <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Well, one thing I was curious about when it comes to like the sound of your masters, like one thing that really stood out to me when I was listening to a bunch of your stuff was that your masters tend to sound really big and wide. Ooh. And I love that. Like to me, like I feel like, you know, I'm in a, I'm in like a, I'm just appreciating the music more. It's like I'm in the environment with the song. And I really, I really appreciate that in your masters. And I was curious to know, like, what are some of your tips for getting a big wide sound? I mean, from the get-go, having a really nice wide mix really helps um, because when you send a mastering engineer something that is pretty narrow and then, you know, they try to widen it, it sometimes can make things sound like really thin and just kind of off in terms of phase and just all that stuff. Um, so... Oftentimes, you know, the mixes that I get are already pretty wide. And, you know, if I'm adding any any stereo spread, it's, again, like the smallest amount, you know, like maybe if we're thinking in percentage, you know, like 8% out of 100, you know, just the littlest little bits, um, I think really, really goes a long way. Yeah, and do you frequently find yourself adding like imaging tools like that to to get that width? No, which is why I'm kind of like <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking a minute to figure out when when you had mentioned how they sound so wide, and I'm thinking I feel like I've only used a stereo like a stereo spread like seven times. <laughs> <laughs> but that's like the thing is that I feel like sometimes other tools end up secretly making things sound wide, you know, whether it's I ended up doing 
a mid-side adjustment where I found that there was so much mud on the side, so I just dipped it away and boom, Mm -hmm. you immediately get this kind of just clarity that, yeah, feels a lot wider, feels like, yeah, the space is much more enjoyable to be in, less weight. Like, yeah, part of of width is like creating clarity so that you perceive that width. So, yeah, yeah, that makes sense if you're cleaning up frequencies and or sometimes even if you're boosting frequencies, like often I find, you know, you boost a little bit top end on the sides and all of a sudden your mix feels even wider because your ears are more sensitive to it. So they, yep. you know, they exactly. hear that, they hear that width that maybe wasn't there before. So, yeah, yeah, that, that's cool. And, and I think, I think you're right too. Like the different tools, adding their own like harmonic content and stuff like that to the mixes that also contributes to like new frequencies, which make the mix sound a little bit wider. So yeah, it yeah. makes a lot of sense. Cool. Um, yeah, cool. So so in the end for you, like what ultimately, like how would you describe what a great master sounds like? Um, ooh, yeah. Hold on. I, I remember I um I was asked this once on on an Instagram thing and I took a photo a screenshot of it because I was like, it's I I took so long to answer <laughs> it that I was like, I need to keep this in my back pocket because I know I'm not gonna be able to just bring it up out of nowhere. Um, so yeah, it's, um, a, a great master. Uh, <laughs> you need to look it up. Go for it. <laughs> no. Yeah, I got it. Okay. Um, so yeah, a, a great master, make sure that the listener is engaged, um, and making sure that it conveys the emotion that needs to be conveyed. Um, and making sure that it does not have any noticeable errors when played back. Pretty simple. And those are kind of the it's it's three simple things, but I feel like it's really important and can work with any genre because you know, obviously the reason why people create and why people listen to music is you know, they want to be engaged, they want to feel a specific, you know, emotion, vibe, whatever, and making sure that the the message is being conveyed sonically and making sure that when you listen back to it, there aren't any errors that take you out of that space. Yeah, I love that for sure. And sometimes, yeah, like, the, I mean, the mix should contribute a large chunk of that for yes. sure, right? Like, obviously, yeah. as mastering engineers, we don't want to get mixes that are full of tons of errors and clipping and all that sorts of stuff or, or, you know, clicks and pops and all that kind of stuff that we have to fix. Obviously that's part of our job. If we have to, if we have to fix those things, we do, but you know, ultimately the mix is going to get you kind of like, you know, 90% of the way there, maybe even more sometimes, or maybe, maybe less. And, you know, I I agree with you. You just have to like emphasize the frequencies that are going to give people that emotional response to it or make it, make them feel things more. And, and uh, yeah, ultimately, yeah, like you said, make sure that it, it works. <laughs> there's no, yeah. there's no noticeable mistakes. Exactly. Yeah. And I guess then like the, the little asterisk at the end of, you know, making it loud enough, you know, <laughs> especially <laughs> when it's on, yeah, like streaming, streaming sites and stuff. For sure. Well, maybe we could talk about that too. Cause obviously, um, you know, that's always, maybe it's just a topic that's beaten to death with mastering engineers, like <laughs> there's levels and, you know, streaming services, but you know, what's your approach to, to levels with this stuff since, a lot of these platforms do tend to adjust your volumes after the fact anyway. So, you know, with that in mind, what's how, how do you approach your masters? Yeah, so I am very much in the mindset of like, you know, one master to rule them all. 
um, <laughs> I feel like I've heard someone say, um, where, yeah, I pretty much said it so that it sounds good. Or, you know, if someone's listening to it now, if someone's listening to it 300 years in the future, it's going to sound good because you're going to have so many different ways to listen um, and it's going to do different things. So you just are trying to make it sound the best it can, no matter how it's being played back, whether it's on someone's small speaker in their phone or on, you know, in their car, um, a very low quality streaming website or a super high fidelity one. You know, it's just like finding that middle ground and understanding what the other sites do, you know. Mm -hmm. So do you ever do you use any tools to help you with making sure that it's going to translate across these different platforms? Um, in general, the main tools that I use other than my ears <laughs> are um, I use um, I think it's like Isotope Insight. Okay. Um, and uh, their tonal balance control and uh, a combination of those. I essentially spent so much time listening to music and kind of having an eye out for where things are landing and knowing that obviously there's like a give and take. Um, something that's super acoustic is going to read on the meters very differently than a full band, something that's aggressive, or even like a, a full orchestra. You know, everything's going to land differently, but then finding the little bits of like similarity of like, okay, most things, you know, momentarily tend to hit this high bit, you know, in terms of like loudness, um, you know, and kind of seeing where the low end might always be on hip hop tracks, you know, and finding the range and at least knowing where my ranges are mm -hmm. so that when I'm trying to make things really dynamic, I can either kind of push it to here or if I feel like it's starting to do something kind of gnarly to the audio, I can at least push it back and know that it's still within that range that has already been commercially released and loved. Yeah, I love that. I think that that's a, a great way to do it because, yeah, it's obviously there's a lot of there's like a wealth of knowledge just sitting out there for us to learn from. Right. It's like you yeah. listen to songs out there and you're like, OK, cool. The big names are doing this and like this is what their songs sound like and these translate. OK, cool. Mine should sound like that as well. You know, it, it's it's pretty safe to say if you make your song sound like a big commercial song out there, your mix is going to translate well or your master is going to translate well. Yeah. And, and I think you're right too. Like I, tools like, um, insight are definitely cool. And I think that uh, there's also the, um, what's the plugin Alliance one. It's like the, I think it's called like streamliner or something like that, that actually lets Some, you something. Yeah. Actually lets you hear like what the different codecs do on Spotify or YouTube and stuff like that. So, yeah. um, those are also really helpful tools just to just to audition it and see, you know, what their algorithm is going to do to it. And I agree as if, if it sounds good, you could probably you could generally get away with one master to rule them all, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then there's other people who try to make one for like you know they'll make a master for iTunes and another one for Spotify, and then they'll make one for CDs and vinyl, and you know you can definitely get lost in those deliverables, I guess. Yeah, and and especially like when you get into the world of vinyl and even CDs or cassettes, there are then you know subtleties that need to be adjusted because of the medium, you know, totally, and yeah. being mindful of dynamics in in vinyl and. And that kind of stuff, but definitely in terms of 
like loudness and all of the streaming sites. You know, I'm just aware that everything's going to do something kind of similar, maybe a little different. So here, here are my references. This is where, here's the range. I'm going to try to look for the range while also trying to make the audio sound the best that it can. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, wh- one thing that I also wanted to ask you about as it relates to your mastering process, and uh, we, were ta- we were kind of talking about this before we started recording, but um, when I look at pictures of your studios, I don't see any speakers there. And I'm very <laughs> curious to learn about your process because I know you mix or you master entirely on headphones. Yes. And uh, I think that there's a lot of people listening to this, if they're, even if they're not into mastering, they're mixing and recording their own music that, that are on headphones entirely. And um, there's a lot of people that have, like fear that headphones are an insuperior like like in or an inferior uh is inferior the word that I'm looking for they're they're not they're not as good as like having speakers to to work off of and or not as accurate so I'd love for yeah. you to just address that head on and and uh talk about your experience on headphones there certainly are some like valid points that um I have seen made and would make myself in terms of headphones um especially because of how like super left right they are um that i actually use a plugin um i believe it's called ooh it's the good hurts um can openers that's what it is can openers and the thing that is missing a lot when you are in headphones is this idea of crosstalk where if you're sitting in a room listening there are two speakers in front of you the spe- the sound from the left speaker will actually interact with your right ear and vice versa. But that doesn't happen when you have two headphones very isolated on your head. So I use this plugin that actually creates crosstalk so that when I am listening and I close my eyes, it actually feels like there are two speakers in front of me, like the sound isn't as hard spread left-right as they usually would be when you listen to headphones. And it feels a lot more like, yeah, I'm in a room with speakers in front of me and I can hear everything kind of everywhere. And I think that's really helpful for myself personally. And the other thing that kind of comes back um, around to One of the reasons why I'm even in headphones in the first place is that since I started this mastering stuff um, when quarantine hit, I was in a one-bedroom apartment with my now wife. So I wasn't able to constantly work on speakers while she's literally in the next room on a Zoom call, you know, with a bunch (laughs) of people. So just for necessity, I needed to kind of be in headphones. And as I'm learning about what music should sound like, and I'm just listening to hours upon hours, hours of music in the headphones, I just learned what music sounds like in this, in this space, in this room, for lack of a better word, you know? Um, and so that when I moved, um, from my original headphones into my now Odyssey headphones, um, I just, it, it translated the exact same way where, you know, I know how stuff sounds in this space so I can make really quick decisions or I know, okay, sometimes this is a little 
heightened. So don't worry if it sounds a little too sizzly or a little too this, that, you know, Um, because I don't really like to add, I know a lot of folks will add um, like EQs or um, sonar things. Yeah, exactly. Sonar works and things that will adjust it. Um, And I've heard that it's super helpful I guess just with the way that my my brain and my ears work, just after listening to to how music sounds, I I'm able to kind of internalize what these sounds like and what movements to make if something is sounding a certain way. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's like when you when you listen to so much music on a specific system, you eventually kind of learn how that works and what you know what that what that range is kind of like what we were talking about earlier with like listening to other reference songs it's like you learn what that reference or what that range is on your speakers or on your headphones and so i'm the same way like you know i i do have sonar works as well i don't use it but every time i try to do it i'm like okay i guess maybe this is technically flatter or whatever but i now know what my speakers sound like so i can just trust them without this extra tool that yeah. Supposedly makes it more accurate, I guess. I almost feel like if I were to use uh something that adjusted the the e the, the frequency EQ on the headphones, I would almost have to then relearn them. And I'm mm-hmm. like, but I already learned them. Yeah. <laughs> well it's interesting because you were talking about how you were using that like that can opener plugin, I think it was. Yeah. And um and I, I was gonna ask you about like I know there's a lot of headphone modeling systems out there, like uh Slate has their VSX, which they're pushing so hard right now where it's like, you know, like simulate being in a studio and having all these different speakers around you and, and like different types of speakers. And, um, it sounds sort of like can opener is a variation of that, but maybe not as like option heavy with different, uh, different control rooms that it's emulating. Right. I think so. I haven't looked too much into it, but I have a feeling it's yeah, a combination of, uh, creating crosstalk, but then also, the 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 quality of like the speakers or the space you know and i feel like maybe the space also changes and it's not just a simple like oh cool now my right ear can hear a little bit of the left signal you know mm-hmm. i think they kind of yeah add some extra dimension which some people may absolutely love and some people are like okay you know i think mm-hmm. it's kind of a to each their own what what each person is looking for when they want to create the space where they want to create sound in for sure. And I think, you know, kind of what we were talking about just a second ago, where it's like, you just have to, even if you're going to use those tools that simulate different control rooms and that kind of thing, like people ask me all the time, like, is it worth getting those kind of plugins and or those those types of headphones? And my answer always is like, either way, you still have to learn what it sounds like. And yeah. if it's simulating a control room that you've never been in before, you have to now learn what that control room sounds like virtually through your headphones. And, you know, once you get that and you you understand what that should sound like in that room, then fine, you can use them. But otherwise, you're just you're in this constant state of learning. So it's like you kind of just you don't. in my opinion, I don't think you need a lot of those tools just because I think you can just listen and learn what your speakers sound like to begin with um, exactly but you but you are right about like that left and right dynamic of like when when they're in isolation yeah it, yeah. it definitely changes things a little bit yeah and then you can obviously take your headphones and go you know to any computer any studio whatnot and you don't have to rely on whether or not it has the plug-in to put you in the space you know true yeah, that, that's actually a really great point. Like, if you just want to have that the flexibility too, you don't want to be bound to a, a specific tool to to use to, to comfortably work, right? Yeah, 
Yeah. yeah. So it just it offers a lot of flexibility and it's it's very convenient, especially since my um my studio is in my house. Um and I have neighbors left and right of me. So it's just another way to kind of keep the noise down and be a little extra polite. <laughs> Fair, of course. Well, and one of the big critiques when it comes to headphones for mixing or mastering is always the low end. Because a lot yeah. of headphones have issues with low end. So mm-hmm. how do you get around that and ensure that your masters translate and have that that proper amount of low end? So when I started, um, I used the tonal balance control um, plugin a lot to visually see what the low end was doing because the only headphones that I had that I could afford wasn't going as low as I would have liked it to. Um, so I, I would use that um, to kind of, again, thinking of like the range, like as long as it was visibly in that range, then I would kind of send it over and be like, okay, let me know what you think, you know, and and usually folks are pretty happy with it. But then as time went on, um, I just invested in higher quality headphones that actually go down quite low. And it's one of those things where it's like, Yes, I don't have speakers, but I've spent, a, you know, the, a similar amount that folks would pay for speakers on on headphones that at least then can really, really translate low end and high end. Yeah, that makes sense. So for people who are maybe working right now on headphones that don't have that low end, yeah, um, you know, is your advice to just like start using like um, metering software to, to to visually see that low end? I think it's probably a combination if you are, if you have the privilege of owning a car, you know, checking car speakers, um, they, te- they tend to have um, pretty good low end um, feedback or you, you can hear the low end in a car is probably a better way to put it. Um, and then, yeah, using some, some metering tools, um, that are reliable. And again, it's like having reference tracks in a session or being able to listen to your reference tracks um, as it goes through the tonal balance control so that you can see, okay, here's where a lot of music is living. Now I can at least see that range, you know, listening to 50 hip hop tracks. Cool. This is generally where stuff lives listening to, you know, a whole bunch of folk tracks and everything else in between and taking a look at where the low end tends to live throughout the song on on the meter, at least, again, it gives you that range and you know, okay, generally in this genre, this is usually what's going on in the low end. So it's not a complete guessing game until you can, yeah, afford to hear, hear lower. Do you find that you're even to this day, like still checking your masters on lots of different platforms or different speakers or never? No, now it's pretty much just these headphones. Um, I'm very, very thankful that most of the feedback that I get, it's it's really funny because yeah, I'll just master it, listen to it on the headphones, send it out, and then I'll get an email that's like, Hey, I checked it in my car, I checked it on my phone, I checked it here and there, and it sounds great. And I'm just like, <laughs> okay. Thank you for checking. And it's extra good to know that, yeah, these these headphones are holding up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I guess, yeah, I guess once you have that uh, validation from your clients that they've they've checked and 
it has translated for them, then that, that's a pretty good assumption that you, you trust your speakers well enough. Yeah, it's like you do it enough times and then you you learn from the feedback or just, you know, the constant sounds good, sounds good. Then I'm like, okay, guess it's sounding good everywhere. I'll take yep. it. I'll keep going. Totally. Well, you had mentioned that um, big thing for you was switching the headphones that you were using, and now you're using the Odyssey headphones, I see. Um, yes. describe, tell us a little bit about those headphones and, like, you know, what made you choose those ones? And, um, you know, what advice do you have for people who are maybe looking for headphones to work off of? Yeah, absolutely. Because I'm trying to see what my... I think I used to use, they were the DT... 990 Pro, I think that was like the buyer dynamic, I yep. want to say. Yeah. Um, and Very comfy have, headphones, by the way. They're so comfy, number one. Number two, they actually are really fantastic for its price point. Like, the, the difference was surprisingly more subtle than I was expecting when I got these Odysseys. Like, there was a difference, but I was expecting even more given the complete price range difference. Um, so well done on them for those. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think a combination because I, I got a new converter um, as well. Or yeah, I got a new converter as well as the headphones like at the same time. So I kind of changed those two things. Um, so I think that kind of helped open up the sound field and, and the frequency range of things. Um, and just again, like my ability to hear like the low end rumble and if sub was just getting like a little too overpowering and stuff that's usually very hidden i was finally able to to hear it and and make um really smart adjustments to and not just again just going off of the meter and being like well it looks high so maybe i'll bring it down and now i can be like it's high and it's perfect you know <laughs> <laughs> for oh, sure really nice yeah so so yeah for people who are looking into headphones like maybe as their first set of headphones that you know what would you recommend there would you suggest splurging and going all the way and getting an expensive set of headphones or i think it depends on the person especially on budget how serious because it's it's very much like an investment you know it's the same thing as buying a pair of speakers um you know and i often try to save up and buy something that i know is gonna last me a while like i could have bought some other headphones that are almost like in-betweens um in terms of like price increase and quality and and that but i I feel like if you can afford and if you are really serious, if you know that this is going to be like an investment in your future career in making audio, like don't go into debt for it. That's like, that's the big, that is the big, bold, flashing thing. Don't go into debt for gear. Like there's so much that's available that is in a good price range. But then when you can afford it, and if you can actually hear and feel a difference, I would say, yeah, go go for it. Because especially in mastering, the last thing that you want to be doing is guessing. You know, we are that final, we are that final step that double checks everything. And you really can't be guessing things because otherwise 
everyone's going to hear that something is off or something is wrong. And so having that certainty is really important. Um, so yeah, if you feel like you are guessing and you can afford to get something that kind of, yeah, helps boost the confidence um, in what you're hearing, I think it's, yeah, very, very good investment. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think you're 100% right that like our job as mastering engineers is to make sure that it's going to translate. It's going to sound well. And I think that that's why when you look at a lot of pictures of big mastering studios, you see these really ridiculous systems that, you know, are just like super expensive speakers. And it's like the reason why a lot of these places have it is because A, they can afford it. But B, it's like their part of the job is just making sure that like the hi-fi people are going to hear the music the same way as the people listening to it on their phones do. And like exactly. you have to test that range of stuff. It's just more tools to help you have that confidence. And I, I don't necessarily believe that you need to have, you know, $60,000 speakers to know that. But there's like there's that point of diminishing returns as well when it comes to speaker selection where most people aren't listening on speakers that that expensive. But, you know, you kind of figure out what translates pretty well. Exactly. And and especially when you get once you are able to afford $60,000 speakers, <laughs> you also know what kind of music you work on. So if, you know, you are someone like Bob Katz, who works on a lot of, I think he works on, you know, a lot of like orchestral things and stuff where the really subtle details, like the audience is listening to every detail you need to be able to hear every detail. But if you're someone who is working with a lot of newer musicians and, you know, stuff that's a lot like grungier, dirtier, more DIY, you know, then you have a little bit more give because the average listener is going to listen more to the lyrics and more to the vibe. And so you can kind of get away with not being able to hear, you know, what's happening at, you know, 18K, you know, or what's happening at <laughs> 21 hertz, you know? <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, uh, you're not mixing necessarily for your dogs to listen to it and yeah. you know, love the quality of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I love that. I think that I, I totally agree with all of that. Um, yeah, it, it, I mean, it sounds like you're the type of person who's really become really... Um, you found ways to make your systems work for you and, and to like get into learning it. And like you were talking about, you've used different metering tools and, and uh, you know, tools for your headphones and stuff like that. So you seem like you're pretty savvy with that kind of stuff to, to help you with your process. Is there, are there any other special tools or any other tips that you have that have helped you with either the quality of your mixes or, or of your masters or with your workflow? Hmm, I'm trying to think. Um terms of what I haven't mentioned, I feel like that's mainly it. I think one thing is that, again, I, I kind of maybe touched on this before, is that um, kind of like how I go about buying headphones, I also have a similar mindset when it comes to plugins. And I feel like since I work completely in the box, there are so many plugins out there. There are so many and it's great. It's fantastic. And there's so many free ones, you know, um, but I really try to be purposeful about what plugins I buy um, and, you know, demoing everything so that as if it was 
gear in my room, you know, a room can physically only hold so, so many things. I kind of have a similar mindset of like, okay, I'm going to like, I'm going to take some time. I'm going to invest in some good compressors. I'm going to invest in some good EQs. I'm going to get some good saturators. And it's really funny how analog brained I am, even though I'm completely in the box. And I think that just kind of helps because, I mean, one of the big reasons why I enjoy mastering versus mixing is because I get pretty, I get overwhelmed pretty easily. And so opening up a session and looking at EQs and just having like 40 to 50 <laughs> options, I'm just like, I think I'm going to go watch TV for a bit, you know, and just completely pivot. So having Having limited options actually can really increase your creativity and like you really know what a certain plugin does and so that you can make really quick and informed choices because there's limited options, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I 100% agree with that. And, uh, you know, it's something I tell my students all the time. It's like, find one EQ plugin and just stick with it. And get really good at it and find like a couple of compressors that you like just for different flavors and stick with those ones. Because the more you know those things, the like the less you have to think about how to use them in the moment. And it allows you to keep so much more focused on the creative side of the process rather than exactly. just like getting yeah all technical and distracting yourself from what you're there to do. Yeah. And I think that that like improves quality. Of course. And obviously, like if you're putting aside time to like practice and learn those tools, and that's that's a different story. But like when you're actually in the middle of working on a project, you can't be distracting yourself with learning the ins and outs of your software or your plugins. Like you you, you just need to get the job done and do it to the best of your abilities. And and you're gonna do that a lot easier when you're comfortable and familiar with everything that you're working with. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things that really stuck with me um when I was in college is um this idea of learning your DAW, learning your your plugins, learning your hardware as if they were instruments and that actually, you know, like someone will practice the guitar and figure out how to navigate the chords and everything. And it's a similar mindset of like, you know, my computer, the DAW, it's all an instrument and knowing where things are really quickly can, again, yeah, make really great creative decisions without even thinking, you know? Yeah, I, I love that. And uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's so easy to get overwhelmed with all of the, all of the different options for plugins and they're so affordable or a lot yeah. of free ones. And so you can easily bombard yourself with like too many options and run into that like option paralysis kind of state. Whereas like back in the day, it was like if you needed gear, you had to spend thousands of dollars to buy it. And you were kind of... At your wallets, uh, you know, like your wallet was the thing holding you back from actually trying out something new. So, you know, you kind of got used to the tool you had and you made it work. And and so yeah. sometimes taking that same approach to plugins can can also work and just you know, holding yourself back and just really getting to know the gear that you have. And um, I'm curious to know, like, when it comes to actually purchasing new plugins then for you, how do you decide when something is worthy of purchasing then? Um, generally, when I feel like I'm lacking something. Um, so oftentimes, as I mentioned earlier, since I'm in the box, um, I really like to find plugins that add a good natural analog 
kind of vibe, whether it's like harmonics, um, warmth. And so um, if I feel like in the, in the beginning, everything that I had was so just like transparent, kind of like harsh, just because there was no like analog warmth to it. So I would actively be like, okay, let me find like a really good compressor. You know, like what's the what's the best of the best using? I would often like compare and be like, okay, you know, what's what's Bob Katz using? What is he saying in the forum? And then I'll like look it up, you know, um, and and uh, I'll I'll try to kind of yeah, I'll I'll see what very very popular mastering engineers are using and being like, do I have this? What does this do? Is this going to help me? Um, but then, yeah, if I feel like, you know, I'm using too many EQs because I'm trying to get rid of these resonances and then I'm like, oh, or I could buy this one thing called Soothe and it's actually going to eliminate me using like five dynamic EQs, you know, and just anything that's going to help and speed up my process. Yeah, I think that's a great approach to it. And uh, yeah, it's definitely something I found myself doing as well. It's like, I don't need more EQ plugins. I don't need more compressors. I need I need the thing that streamlines my process and makes me yeah. work smarter and faster. And, you know, if you find those things, then those are plugins worth buying. Yeah. You know? <laughs> right on. Well, at the end of the day, ultimately for you, how do you know when you're done mastering a song? I know that I'm done mastering a song when either the things one i think one of the big um it's it's hard <laughs> it's hard cuz you i feel like when you work on something for so long you always find all of these little things like oh but now there's this now there's that so the fact that in the beginning when i do my blind listen and i will take note of the things that i hear the things that stick out once i cross that off and i listen back again and I don't hear any actual like technical errors, I'll kind of just say, okay, I fixed up what I heard. I gave it the energy that it needs. It's at a good volume level. I'm going to send it to the artist and see if they like it. And I feel like making a list at the very beginning and being very adamant to sticking to that helps prevent the, you know, I've been working on this for three days and I still keep hearing things that are popping up it's like, I think you've just been listening to it for too long. And this this happens in mixing too, and probably even recording um, and just trying to get take after take after take. And it's like, just take notes in the beginning when your ears are super fresh. And because that's the thing is that we're listening to it the way that the audience is, which is, you know, for the first time. And yes, if they love the song, they're going to listen to it over and over and over again. And then they might find new things. But we... Yeah, we kind of need to focus on just what are we what are we noticing at very first listen and how can we emphasize what's important and help eliminate or soften what may be distracting. Totally. Yeah, I yeah. agree. That 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 first listen is the most important listen for for, yeah. for everyone. And uh yeah, if you Provide if, if if your listeners are hearing something that just sounds horrible right away, or it's got really annoying frequencies or resonances and that kind of stuff, they're not going to give it that second listen. So you really do have to make sure that you are taking that first listen approach to mastering. And I love what you said there about kind of coming up with a, a list of things you want to cross off and and having that game plan. Because once you do that, then it definitely 
then then you're just like you you, you start to realize like you're just getting in your head about the master and you don't you shouldn't be doing that because exactly. you're all, like you said you're all, you're always going to find problems and that's that's the problem with finding the problem with searching for problems is you find more problems so yep. um <laughs> it just becomes this like endless cycle but that first listen is always the most important thing so i, I agree with you 100 percent there yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, I, I think on that note, we, sh- we should start to wrap up. If um, if people want to learn more about you or follow you online, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah. So, um, Daughterboard Audio, if you Google that, that definitely brings up my website, which is daughterboardaudio.com. Um, I'm the most active on Instagram at Daughterboard Audio, all one word. Um, and I'm kind of on Facebook, but not really. So, I think Instagram is is my my top go-to social spot. Um, and then, yeah, I think that's about it, where you can find me, other other than finding me here in Philly. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again for, for being on. I really appreciate it. And I think that you gave us a lot of great perspective on your process and mastering and also, you know, things like the headphones. I think that that's, uh, there's a lot of great topics that we cover here that I know a lot of my students and a lot of the listeners are curious about. So you nailed it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was wonderful. Thanks for having me. So that was my interview with Elaine Rasnick, and I hope that you enjoyed that. I've definitely really enjoyed talking about mastering on headphones, and I'm always fascinated with people who do that because personally for me, like I've just never been able to get into mixing or mastering on headphones. Sure, I'll check them every now and then just to have another set of speakers to reference on, but I've never been able to go all in and mix or master on headphones. So I love learning from people who are doing it and learning her process with it. And I think that it was very smart of her to first start using uh, frequency analyzers and analyzing those graphs. And I think that, you know, if you're not trusting your speakers or your headphones right now, definitely following her advice there is really good. Um, And that's going to help you start to identify what's going on in your mixes, even if you can't hear it. But then obviously, you know, investing in a good set of headphones like Elaine did there will definitely help you to, again, feel more confident in what you're listening to and to just really trust what's happening and to actually hear a full frequency range, which is typically the problem that most people have with headphones. So I really enjoyed talking about that with her. And I also really enjoyed learning more about her intake form process with her clients, because I think that that is a really key piece of making sure that you're delivering what your clients want and fully understanding what their expectations are of you so that you can meet that need and absolutely crush the project, have them be happy and have them keep coming back to you as a client. So if you're someone who is trying to offer your studio services and make money working with different clients, I think that that is a key component that you definitely need to have in your business. And it's just going to keep making sure that you're providing the best service for your clients, making sure that they're happy. And then that's going to create more of a word of mouth snowball and ultimately attract more people through the door. So I think Elaine absolutely nailed it in that respect. And I think that you should totally take her advice there as well. So yeah, I hope that you learned a lot out of that. I definitely did. And if you did and you enjoyed this episode, definitely make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And also make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That is where I help out musicians with creating pro-sounding recordings from their home studios. And if you're not sure what steps to be taking, what tools to be using, what order you should work in, all of that stuff, definitely make sure to check out MasterYourMix.com. And also, while you're there, check out my book. It's called The Mixing Mindset. That is where I break down the process of mixing step-by-step so that you understand exactly what to do. And it makes it really easy for you to make the ideas that you hear in your head come out of your speakers. So once again, check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset, and that's available at MasterYourMix.com. So we've reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the very end, and I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. 
Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com.